the scripture reading this morning is from Mark 5, 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Bethany. I'm uh, David, the uh, the youth and worship director. So, if you're confused as to why I'm up here, you're not alone. I haven't quite figured out what I'm doing either. So, <laughs> just bear with me. Today, we're going to take a look at two stories that Mark carefully intertwines together to show us a clear picture of Jesus's love and compassion towards humanity. At first glance, these stories seem deeply connected, and in many ways, they really are. But Mark's going to give us a clear picture to show um, that this isn't just another story of a few more people that Jesus heals. We see Jesus living out his own commandments, not only loving the least of these, but also showing incredible love to his enemy. This provides us not only with an example of 
how we are to love our neighbors, but also should fill us with an overwhelming love for Jesus as we see how he cares for us in our time of suffering. Mark also paints a picture of the importance of humility as we come before Jesus. And in the end, we're reminded of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made and that incredible love for us. All right, grab your outlines. We're going to dive in, take a look at three key elements of the compassion that we see in Jesus. Our first point here is that Jesus shows compassion to people who are suffering. And we love to talk about Jesus' compassion, about how God is love. But when we honestly look at the scriptures, we see some pretty clear pictures of God's wrath towards sinners as well. His anger at people who are disobeying him and hurting others. We see that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We know that Jesus called the Pharisees a, a brood of vipers. Um, it doesn't get much more offensive than that. I don't, I don't know about you, but if somebody came up and called me and my friends a pile of snakes, I don't think I would respond well. <laughs> and these were the people who thought that they were more important than everybody else. So that's really a shot. Or think of how he reacts when he sees that the temple place, or the temple has been turned into a marketplace for manipulation of the people of Israel, especially those who are poor. He gets angry. <laughs> he, uh, he chases people out with a whip, and he's throwing tables, scattering their dishonest prophets. The power and the righteous anger of God is nothing to be laughed at, but neither is his compassion and his love. And most of us are driven to two extremes. Uh, we have a really hard time trying to balance things that seem a little bit contradictory. And so, so either we, we go on this side and we say, God is love, and, and everything else in the Bible, it's, it's just misunderstood, or, or maybe it, it wasn't even meant to be in there. Maybe we go that far, hopefully not. But, or we go to the other side and, and we say, God is powerful, and we all just need to hide in fear of him. And we have a hard time balancing that. Um, there's truth on both sides, and we need to learn to balance it. But for me, I would say that I tend to gravitate no, more naturally towards that second side. Don't get me wrong, I, I understand that God loves us. And I'm amazed by the good news of what Jesus has done for us. But at the end of the day, it's easier for me to picture the power and awesomeness of God than it is for me to embrace the idea of God loving me personally, specifically, intentionally, and deeply. But for me, there was a significant shift in my life about two years ago. Um, as many of you know, there were complications when our youngest daughter was born. And the next few weeks, and ultimately the rest of our lives, has turned into quite a bit of a roller coaster ride. <laughs> During those first few days, when we didn't know if she was even going to live, it was hard. Then the question since then has continued to be, what, what is this life going to look like? But during that pain, as Caitlin and I mourned, especially in those first few weeks, God's love became abundantly clear to me. I don't think I can ever look at him the same. He showed us incredible love through family and friends, through the nurses at the hospital, but ultimately in his word, and by meeting us where we were in the darkest, darkest times 
late at night as we were mourning, just being there with us and, and knowing his love. I think this quote from C.S. Lewis captures perfectly how God can use our pain. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Inevitably, in a room like this today, there are going to be people who are suffering deeply. I don't say any of this to trivialize what you're going through. My goal isn't to say that you should buck up, recognize God's love, and just get on with your life, but really the opposite. You need to run to him, be honest with him about how deep the hurt truly is. Fall on your face and lay all of your sufferings before the Savior. He knows your needs. One of my favorite verses has become Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. Such a wonderful reminder that even at our darkest points of suffering, Jesus has gone before us. Jesus has experienced the pain that we've experienced, experienced the temptation, the darkness, and he has done all that to make a way for us. Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus has a really unique way of meeting people who are suffering where they're at and putting his glorious love and compassion on display as he cares for them. In this story here, Mark paints a picture of two different people who come to Jesus. They're very different, but what they have in common is that in their suffering, they humble themselves before the Savior. Our first character, Jairus, uh, Mark tells us he's a ruler of the synagogue. As a ruler of the synagogue, he was likely a Pharisee, but at the very least, those are his people. He's, uh, he's with, with those people we've been talking about um, the religious leaders, the elite. This wasn't a friend of Jesus's. Now let me be clear. In all likelihood, this was a very distinct enemy of Jesus's. You have to remember just two chapters ago, already Mark tells us that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are working together to figure out a way to shut Jesus up. They don't know what it's going to take. If they have to kill him, that's okay. But he can't keep talking because... He's messing their lives up. But here, we see Jairus at his end. He has no other options. His precious little 12-year-old girl is about to die. And who knows how long she's been sick. This may have all happened quickly, but this may have been going on for a while. No matter what they try, nothing works. Finally, this father realizes that his love for his daughter His desire for his daughter's life is greater than his need for success or acknowledgement by his peers. It might be religious suicide, but he's going to find out if this Jesus, this Jesus that everybody's been talking about, can do something. Suffering as his daughter slowly wasted away drove him to fall before the very person that he was trying to destroy. When he finally falls at the feet of Jesus... 
Jesus responds by getting up immediately and going to heal his daughter. And as we'll see in the end, Jesus' compassion overflows as he meets this man where he's at and shows the love of a father to this little girl. Suffering drove Jairus to humble himself before Jesus. And Jesus' response was that of a loving father to his child. So my question to you today is, what in your life keeps you from turning to Jesus? Is it your desire to retain control? Desire to solve your own problems? Or maybe not to be seen as overly religious? Or are you just so focused on success in this life, in your job, your family, your hobbies, that you're just, frankly, not all that worried about what Jesus has to say? Turning to Jesus means humility. Have you humbled yourself and recognized that you cannot solve life problems by yourself? Have you turned to Jesus? Don't let anything stand in the way of falling at Jesus' feet, seeking his love and forgiveness and strength. As the story continues, we quickly turn to another character. Jesus is headed towards Jairus' home to heal this sick little girl, And as he's walking, a woman reaches out and touches the edge of his robe in hopes to find healing. Mark tells us that this woman's been suffering from bleeding for the past 12 years, possibly her entire adult life. Just to be clear, this bleeding doesn't mean a cut that won't go away. This woman is suffering from a bleeding that not only made her unable to have children, but would have made her unmarriable in that culture and also unclean according to Jewish law. And as such, she would have been a social outcast. This leads us right into our second element for understanding Jesus' compassion. Jesus' compassion is not constrained by social status or human understanding of value. This woman is a complete and utter social outcast. No one would want to be around her. Certainly no one would touch her because if they did, they would also become unclean. Can you imagine 12 years without the physical touch of another human being? Never a hug, not even so much as a handshake. And to make matters worse, this woman spends every penny that she has on doctors who simply make the problem worse. They prescribe all sorts of different activities and medicines, if you can call them that, for her to try, but it doesn't get any better. Now, not only is she sick and unclean, but without a dollar to her name and sicker than she was to begin with. She'd heard of Jesus, She knew that was her only hope. But there was no way that a woman like her, disgusting and unclean, could approach the teacher. I mean, he wouldn't let her within a hundred yards of him, right? But if only she could get close enough, just close enough to, to touch his garments, she'd be healed. She knew that. So she pushes her way through the crowd in hopes that no one will recognize her, maybe even crawling on her hands and feet. 
And as she gets there, she reaches out and touches his robe, and instantly there's a change. Instantly she feels healing. The bleeding has stopped. She might be clean again. Jesus has healed her. And so she begins to slip away in hopes that no one will notice what she's just done. And then time stops. Jesus stops. He knows what happened. And we get, when we get into this part of the story, it always makes me laugh. Jesus asks, who touched my clothing? And then the disciples, who for the last week, they've been with Jesus, and, and earlier in the week, they, they watched Jesus speak into a storm that's raging. They're about to die. He speaks into a storm, and the wind stops. The waves stop. Instantly, they're safe. Or just a few days later, he goes to this region where there's a demon-possessed man who is famous for how brutal and crazy he is. And Jesus drives out thousands of demons from this man, takes this man who's acting like a beast, who no one can seem to control, drives out the demons and restores life. So that's, that's the context for these disciples. That's their past week. How quickly we forget these same men respond to Jesus by basically saying, are you an idiot? Everybody and their brother's touching you. They can't help but laugh and maybe cry a little because unfortunately, these men sound a lot like little children. Not mine, I mean, because they're perfect, but I've heard of children questioning their parents before. Anyway, back to our story. Jesus waits for an answer. Who touched me? Now remember, he's God. He doesn't have to ask that question. He knows. But he's giving this woman a chance to come clean, a chance to tell her story. And Mark tells us that she does. She comes forward in fear. She falls at his feet. And she tells Jesus the whole story of her life. What her trouble has been, what her suffering has been like. And tells him how she's been healed by him. She humbles herself before the Savior, just as Jairus does. And Jesus' response here just blows me away. He calls her daughter. You've got to remember, she's a social outcast. She's despised by all, avoided by all. Looked down on by all. Most people wouldn't even give her the time of day. But he speaks into her life in the way that only a loving father can. Daughter, you're healed. Your faith has made you well. Don't worry anymore. Don't worry about your sickness. Don't worry about people's perception of you. You are a child of God. Jesus saw past the rough exterior. He saw past what other people saw. And he showed her the love of the Father, calling her out of her shame and into new life. So I have two questions for you this morning. Do you see your life as too far gone? 
Do you live in shame because of either choices that you've made or maybe things that have been done to you? Jesus' love and compassion is in no way limited to people who have their life altogether. Regardless of what your life looks like, Jesus loves you. He made you, and that is where your value lies. Don't let the world tell you that your value lies in how you look or what you can do. Your value lies in being a son or daughter of God created in his image. Now my second question is this. For those of you who call yourself followers of Jesus, does your life look anything like Jesus? When you look at the people around you, does their value come from the way that they look, the choices that they make, what they've accomplished, or maybe what they'll be able to accomplish? Is someone only deserving of your love if they can return that love to you? Jesus asks a question in Matthew, or sorry, yeah, Matthew 5:46 that I think really cuts to the heart of the issue. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? To feel the full punch of what Jesus is saying here, you've got to understand who the tax collectors are. As a Jew, you would see the tax collectors as a traitor, for sure. These tax collectors were Jews who were working for the Roman government, collecting money for the Romans. And anything that they could manage to get away with taking more than what the Romans were requiring... Well, that was just money that they could pocket. It may be hard to believe, but they're worse than the IRS. These are family and friends who have the power of the Roman army behind them, enabling them to steal from you. And Jesus says, if all you can do is love people who look like you and act like you and think like you or have the same values as you, Are you really any better than the people that you despise as being evil in this culture? So, does your love for people look like Jesus' love? Or does it look like just a different version of this world's love? Does your interactions with the world around you look like the love that Jesus commands? Or does your love for hurting people look a lot more like love that this world promotes? As we go back into the story here, we see that Jesus doesn't prioritize the world. Sorry, Jesus doesn't prioritize the way that the world does. While he's taking time to reach out in love to this woman, who's an outcast of society, Jairus's angst has to be growing. He came to Jesus. <laughs> he came to Jesus. His daughter was near death. He told Jesus that, and he's worried. Jesus seems to be wasting time on a woman who deserves nothing while his daughter is wasting away. And during this time, Jairus' daughter dies. But we'll see again Jesus responds with love and compassion. Jesus overhears people telling Jairus that his daughter is dead, that there's no more reason to bother Jesus. We can go ahead and go home now. 
And as Jesus overhears this, he jumps in and catches Jairus before he does anything. Calmly reminds him, do not fear, only believe. It's a big statement, but it's one that Jesus can say with confidence. And it's a loving statement as he calms this father that I can only imagine is really wrestling with what's going on. And as he walks into Jairus' home, he's met with a crowd of people who are wailing over, this, over the death of this little girl. Chances are that the majority of this group is maybe social mourners, but at least it's part of a tradition. You know, this is something that they're doing as part of the social norms as, as they're um, remembering this daughter's life. And Jesus, right away, is focused on the hurting family, not on the crowd of people who are putting on a show. He walks in, and the first thing he does is he dismisses the crowd of mourning people and assures everyone, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And it's in this moment, right here, Jesus reminds us that ultimate death is not when we breathe our last breath. Death in life is simply temporary, and our greatest need in this life is not healing, but it's healing in our relationship with God. Right standing before the Creator. This leads us right into our final point. Jesus steps into our mess and becomes unclean so that we might be considered clean. As Jesus walks into the room of this little girl and takes her by the hand, according to Old Testament law, he becomes unclean. You cannot simply touch a dead body and then go on with your life. But Jesus lovingly reaches out, takes her hand, and speaks the words of a father to his daughter. Little girl. The, the phrase that he uses here is not a descriptive phrase. He's not just saying what she is. But it's a term that a father or a mother would use as they speak to their own child. You can think of it as him saying, honey, get up. But as Jesus speaks this loving term of endearment to this girl, he shows his ultimate control over life and death. Both with the woman who reaches out and touches his robe. And again, as he takes the hand of this little girl, we see that Jesus willingly becomes unclean so that he can show compassion and healing to hurting people. And the great news is this. That's exactly what he does for us. The whole idea here reminds me of a Bible verse that I think perfectly captures the image that Mark has developed for us. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the good news that the entire Bible points us towards. We have all sinned. We're all undeserving of God's love. But God made Jesus, 
who is completely clean, completely free from sin. Take on the sin of the world so that anyone who repents and follows him will receive forgiveness and right standing before God. God sent Jesus down into our mess, willingly entering into the sin and the hurt of this world that he might make a way for us to be restored. We live in a messed up world. Whether we want to recognize it or not, we all, all of us, contribute to the problems and the brokenness. Little children shouldn't be dying. People shouldn't be sold into slavery. No one should have to go without food. Relationships shouldn't be strained and families shouldn't break apart. It's not the way that God intended things to work. It's not how he designed this beautiful world. But as humans, we've stepped in Mistake after mistake, sin after sin, bad choice after bad choice. The world begins to fall apart. This world we live in is a mess. Jesus didn't have to come. And don't get me wrong, him coming is our only hope. We need him to come. But he's God. He didn't need to save us. But he did. He stepped down into our mess and became unclean so that we might be clean and have right standing before God. And that's the gospel. That's the good news that brings us to life. But here is the even crazier part. That uncleanness, that uncleanness didn't stick to him. (laughs) On the cross, he wore the entire weight of the world's sins. Every wrong thing that you have done, every wrong thing that anyone has done was placed upon his shoulders and he experienced the wrath of God. But just three days later, he put death in its place as he rose and he defeated sin, death, and the devil forever. And this is the ultimate confirmation that he is who he said he is. And he will come back for us one day, restoring anyone who believes in him to eternal life with bodies that will no longer break down or decay. Just like Jesus reached out with his hand for the dead girl, he's reaching out to you. The call of Jesus is one of love and compassion for his children. He made you. He loves you. He knows what you need. Jesus willingly stepped into our mess so that we can be restored to God. And if you haven't found hope yet in Jesus' finished work on the cross, I encourage you to turn to him. I plead with you. Find Jeff, Pastor Jeff, or one of the elders or I after the service. We'd absolutely love to talk to you about what it looks like to find freedom in Jesus. God, I thank you for this morning that you gave us another day that we can breathe and recognize who you are. I just pray for people today who are hurting that they would find 
their strength, compassion, and who you are in your love. God, I thank you for what you did on that cross as you, as you bore the weight of my sin, as you bore the weight of everyone's sin. I'm so thankful that you then proved your godhood. You proved that your promises were true by rising again. We can hope in you. I just pray uh, for anybody here today who, who has not found their hope in you, who has not turned completely and totally to you. God, that they'd set aside those things that pull them away from you. Set aside the concern of external, the way other people look at them. And God, that they would just turn to you, find the love the Father poured out on them. In Jesus' name, amen.